This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Spirit of Leadership, Liberating the Leader in Each of Us by Harrison Owen in 1999. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 7, The First Function of Leadership, Evoking Spirit with Vision Leadership is not a matter of command and control. It is the evocation and alignment of spirit. Spirit cannot be commanded, but it may be invited. Spirit cannot be coerced, but it may be channeled. Spirit rarely, if ever, responds to answers. Rather, it responds to questions, which create the nurturant open space in which it may flow. Vision poses the question that creates the space into which spirit flows and becomes powerful. It has become popular for organizations to engage in visioning, the end product of which is a vision statement. The advent of visioning as a legitimate corporate practice is certainly to be applauded, for it recognizes precisely the realities that we are discussing. But the equation of vision, with a vision statement, is at best weak, and at worst a total perversion of what vision is all about. There is an acid test for the effectiveness of vision statements. One simply posts them on the wall and asks the group involved, would you be willing to give your life for that? Admittedly, this may sound rather extreme, but we typically spend more time on the job than doing anything else, with the possible exception of sleeping. If the answer is no, there is reasonable indication that the statement is only words, untouched by the power of vision. Upon examination, it usually turns out that such ineffective vision statements emerge in one of two ways. Usually, they are the product of the titular leader's description of what the business is all about, issued very much in the style of a policy directive. Alternatively, the vision statement comes into being after endless hours of committee meetings. This is simply a case of the right idea addressed in the wrong way, for vision is not a policy statement or the product of committee. It comes from an entirely different place. The Genesis of Vision Vision emerges from the depths. It comes from the domain of the dragon, see chapter 5, in ways that contravene logical policymaking or standard committee procedure. The, the exact mechanics are a matter of currently evolving discovery, but they seem to have a lot to do with the powers of intuition and the operation of what now would be called the right brain. But, if the precise mechanics are less than clear, the phenomenon has long been known. The birthing place of vision is the open space created when things fall apart and difference is perceived. It emerges when an old way of being or of doing things is no longer appropriate or effective, and a new way has yet to emerge. The instigating moment may be the end of a particular business or product, or the exhaustion of a theoretical concept or way of looking at things. In extremes, it may be the dissolution of a social order. In all cases, the instigating factor is the awareness of ending. This moment is far from comfortable, for by definition, all the usual supportive elements defining the way things are supposed to happen cease to exist. Even the stout-hearted will experience fear and a sense of emptiness. But emptiness is the clearing in the forest of everyday activities, the open space in which vision may emerge. The good news of open space at the point of ending is that things may be seen with a degree of clarity that the business of everyday life obscures. When all the schedules, to-do lists, and committee meetings are over, there arrives a profound and rich moment in which it is possible to ask what it all means anyhow. 
attempts to fill the open space with yesterday's answers are automatic, but futile. At its point of genesis, vision appears in forms most notable for their variety. For some people, it is a still, small voice. Einstein apparently heard his visions as music, which he later translated into mathematics. My cottonwood tree experience was purely visual. I could see the connection of all beings with the intensity of a waking dream. Others report experiencing various colors, shapes, and sounds, made significant only by the inescapable awareness that meaning, clear and undefined to be sure, was present. I use the word inescapable with intention. Vision is compelling, even compulsive, which is both the problem and the power. Recurrent images, in whatever format, tend to be crazy-making, and those who report such recurrent images are often taken to be crazy. Indeed, the difference between hallucination and emergent vision may be almost imperceptible. The power of vision also derives from this sense of inescapability and compulsion. Visionaries typically are driven people. In the vernacular, they see things that others don't see, march to a different drummer, and play by new rules. They tend to be strange and difficult to get along with. Their strangeness or differentness is easy to understand, for by definition, they have perceived, in the open space, some difference that makes a difference to them. Where others see only ending, or destruction, or nothing at all, those possessed by a vision see some difference, small or large, that renders the future of possibility, and, march, and marks the first step toward a new version of reality. If visionaries are compulsive, they are also frustrating, for they tend to talk in repetitive circles, struggling to bring their object of awareness into focus. Their compulsion gives them the appearance of certainty. Their lack of clarity gives often that makes them an object of scorn. It is very difficult to be convinced of something that nobody else can see, and it is just as hard to live with one who suffers from such a conviction. But all of that comes with the territory. It is more than a little tempting to question the source of a vision. Strict behaviorists, convinced that human behavior in all its forms is simply the outcome of electrochemical reactions, will posit a bad dinner the night before. Neurophysiologists might propose the right brain. Humanistic psychologists offer the unconscious mind. And mystics will identify the great cosmic abyss. I don't know, but if pressed, I would suggest that vision comes from the domain of the dragon that it is a manifestation of spirit. Although the question is important, the answer, for our purposes, is not essential. It is only important that vision begins in open space with the perception of difference. Sharing vision from one to the many. Vision, for all its power and potential, is not worth a great deal as long as it remains the private preserve of a single individual. Once shared, however, it has the capacity to focus and galvanize spirit in remarkable and often breathtaking ways. The distance, however, from the one to the many is not small, and traversing that distance cannot be done without cost. One of the best descriptions of the passage of an emergent vision is provided by Thomas Kuhn in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Although Kuhn might not, might not like the suggestion that he is writing about vision, I believe that to be the case. His actual subject matter is the arrival of the different scientific conceptual models, or in his terms, paradigms, through which the world is understood. Stripped to essentials, a paradigm is a way of looking at reality that makes sense. It arises from the end of an older vision, with some significant difference perceived. 
Although vision may lack some of the scientific precision possessed by paradigm, I take them to be the same. We learn from Kuhn that the, that the progress of scientific knowledge does not occur in the nice linear pattern that high school science classes sometimes suggest. It occurs in great tumultuous leaps when an older vision proves inadequate. The story is that once upon a time there was a standard way of looking at the world, be it Ptolemaic, Babylonian, Copernican, or Newtonian, that worked quite well until it, would not it was noticed that everything didn't quite fit in. So the theory was adjusted to fit the anomalies. Its proponents said something like, the theory is true except for... After a while, the exceptions grew greater than the rule, and something had to give, but not without a struggle. Those who lived by the old worldview were loath to change. Things were quite comfortable as they saw it, and dealing with reality in a new way was not quite what they had in mind. At the same time, a small growing band found the exceptions inescapable and the rule intolerable, so they imagined, or we may say visioned, a different way of looking at things. Heresy! Quite literally, people paid in blood, and often with their lives, for seeing things differently. And those on the other side resisted the change, quite understandably. For implicit in the acceptance of change was the acknowledgement of the passage of the old order. Those who had defined their lives in terms of the old order discovered that their lives were not only different, but also finished. Not pleasant. Gathering Spirit Qualities of Effective Visions Before vision can focus spirit, it must first gather spirit, and that is no simple task, especially when the folks involved are not at all sure that the new direction is in their best interest or that they even want to be gathered. All of which leads to some suggestions on the specifications of effective vision, effective in the sense that it really inspires, or inspirits. Powerful, effective visions have three qualities. They are big, attractive, and doable. Big is not a matter of being grandiose, but rather of being commodious. The vision must be big enough to actually gather all the spirit inside. Obviously, spatial talk is not really appropriate when speaking of spirit, but it may get the idea across. The point is that the vision must be large enough to provide room for all the folks who are likely to participate, and more. There must be space for all essential points of view, frames of reference, skills, occupations, and whatever. When vision is too small, it is exclusive, and the power of vision to gather spirit will be vitiated from the start, no matter how good or exciting the vision may be. Not only must vision be big enough for all the players as they are at the moment, but there must also be plenty of room to grow. Vision is never an answer, but always a question that initiates a quest toward the fulfillment of the participants. It is a journey that elicits the best that everybody has, and simultaneously provides the space in which they might become infinitely more than they ever imagined. Certainly, a vision must have a focus, but as a journey must have a destination. But when the journey's end is totally known in advance, it is scarcely a worthwhile undertaking. Mystery and awe are experienced in the presence of powerful visions, which also usually means the presence of fear. In extremes, fear may prevent some people from entering into the vision, and it may well be that they should not even go on the journey. But, unless the tingle of fear is known somewhere at the beginning, there is a strong likelihood, indeed an absolute certainty, that the vision is too small. Tame visions go nowhere. The second characteristic of a powerful, effective vision is attractiveness. Spirit cannot be coerced, it must always be invited, 
and few will accept an unattractive invitation. If vision provides the space for growth, it must also propose an appealing direction for growth. Nobody has to enter into the vision. The test for the individual is always, do I want to be like that? Finally, a powerful, effective vision must be doable. Doable actually has two senses. First, it must be technically feasible. Lots of big, attractive visions have foundered for the simple reason that there was no way on earth that they could be accomplished. Obviously, good visions will, and must, push the limits of technology. But if there is no sense of a likely positive outcome, the possibility of eliciting a reasonable number of co-journeyers is limited at best. A second sense of doable is historically possible. Many visions that are big, attractive, and technically feasible are just inappropriate to the circumstances of those addressed. The feeling here is that might be someone else's vision, but not ours. A very good example of historical non-doability appears in the reaction of non-Western countries to the vision of Western economic development. Few citizens of non-Western countries who are knowledgeable about the Western vision would deny either its bigness or its attractiveness, and its technical feasibility has been amply demonstrated. But there remains a real sense that, good though it may be, it is not them. Westerners, of course, have viewed this reaction as being something between madness and idiocy, but it may well turn out that the doubters were right not only in terms of their own history, but also in terms of the history and nature of the planet. Western technology as a driving vision clearly has its limitations, as evidenced by its propensity for fouling the nest in which we all live. Vision in the Four Immutable Principles one might suspect that having these three criteria for effective vision firmly in hand, it should now be possible to design an irresistible vision. I think that is unlikely, for the simple reason that spirit doesn't work that way. It is true that spirit seems to follow certain principles, but they are not mechanistically coercive. More accurately, to the extent that there are mechanics, they are the mechanics of the quantum, and not of Newton. Newton tells us that when dealing with things such as a large rock, Given a lever of sufficient length and strength, combined with some leverage point, the rock will move. Quantum mechanics tells a different story. In, a world of, in the world of high energy, the principle of indeterminacy applies. Although it may sound rather odd, the principle says that given enough, given enough rocks, levers, and time, some rock, somewhere, will probably move. In other words, with thorough study and careful work, one may raise probability, but never to the level of certainty. Raising probability with vision and spirit requires that we remember the four immutable principles introduced in the previous chapter. The first principle, whoever comes is the right people, reminds us that becoming inspired, electrified, and turned on by any vision is always a matter of personal choice. A vision forced is a vision killed. Vision, after all, is a question and an invitation to fulfillment. The second principle, whatever happens is the only thing that could have happened, reminds us that visions, like parents, that specify end results in detail are bound to be frustrated. Such visions become limitations and not evocations. Be prepared to be surprised. The third principle, whenever it starts is the right time, reminds us that vision does not occur in time. Rather, time, create, time occurs in the context of vision. When vision strikes, it creates its own time, and that is one of the ways in which we know it was a real vision, and not just a flash in the pan. The fourth principle, when it's over, it's over, reminds us that visions have a lifespan, and when it is over, 
it is over. Certainly, visions may, have a, may be renewed or sustained, but there comes a time when a particular vision simply runs out of steam, and its capability to focus spirit wanes and ceases. That is true in the record of scientific visions. The Ptolemaic picture of the universe gave way to, to, to Copernicus, from thence to Newton, and on to the quantum theorists. Each of these visions, in its own time, created a frame of reference from which to make sense of what was going on in the world. Then the exceptions appeared and the anomalies grew. It was not that the vision was no longer true, it simply lacked the power to focus spirit. When it's over, it's over. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.